everybody and welcome to episode 147 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me as always is Ben Marshall. And yeah, as we do every other episode, we will start off this episode with a frog call. See if Ben can get it right. Well, naturally. We're one for one, Ben, ever. I've got one right, you've got one right, so you know... That's because we picked ones named after what they sound like, which was flipping. You were genius. very kind to me, giving me the quacking frog. What was the one you got? Yeah. Oh, it was the frog that we were doing the episode on. It was the Kokri frog, wasn't it? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. one that I had the answer literally in front of me as I was hearing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's see, let's see what this frog's. See if you can work this one out. He's looking intensely. You're concentrated. It's giving me bird vibes. So my brain is going towards those wonderful frogs that are called mountain chickens. I'm feeling like this frog sounds like a chick. Uh, A cheeping chick and therefore a young mountain chicken. Okay. I forget the scientific name. Yeah, it's not the worst guess I've ever heard. It's actually the call of... (laughs) Also, man, chickens are humongous. I feel like they're going to have like a proper croak, you know? Oh, but come on. That's, they're that's, like the size of a football. If there's anything that says frog, it's a frog that looks one way and then sounds another. That's such a like classic amphibian misdirect. Okay, yeah, okay. It's I respect so that. It is, in fact, a frog called Adenomera tomii. I picked it because it's called tomii and I'm called Tom, so big fan. Although it's spelled T-H-O-M-E-I. Yeah, an Adonera thomii, you could say, but it's thomii, I believe. And I actually couldn't find a common name for this species. It was only recently described in 2006. The genus Adonera are known as tropical bullfrogs. And this one is a little frog from eastern Brazil, the Atlantic forest. And um, yeah, like I say, not much is actually known about it. It was described in 2006 as Leptodactylus thomii. They changed the name to Adenomera thomii. But there are some quite cool things. And, you know, it's always a pain doing a frog that doesn't have a common name because it's like... It know. feels like it's not as relatable, doesn't it? It does, like, yeah. You want to have that banjo frog, pobble bonk energy. Yeah, but... But uh, but you just don't get it. But you were saying you think this is quite a big frog. It's actually not. It's quite a small frog. But it's quite cool colours. It's like sort of jazzy. It's grey and black and a bit of tan. A few sort of stripes, a few chunks of colour on there. Like I said, it's found in Brazil. And what's cool about them is that this and other closely related species, when the female lays the eggs, this like special gloopy liquid comes out as well. And then the male and the female like furiously sort of splash this liquid up into a nice foam and it, they build a foam nest for their tadpoles to develop in. Oh, like those yeah, bugs. So they, yeah, lots of bugs do it and it, quite a few yeah. frogs do it as well. So they froth up this foamy fluid and then they lay the eggs in there. And so when the tadpoles hatch out, they're in these nice foam nests. Most of these species, most of these Adenomera species, they have tadpoles that hatch from these eggs and just kind of chill in the foam until they turn into frogs. They don't eat. <laughs> they just await. They in just the wait, foam. yeah. They just live in the safe foam. Some of them lay there. They lay their eggs in like a burrow in the mud, and then they froth it up. So I think the froth has kind of a benefit to the tadpoles because it means they won't dry out if there's less water. Yeah. it sort of mixes yeah. the water and the air together. It does sort of make sense that it's creating some sort of like froth. You've got air for insulation, I would guess, and you've got something that's airtight for moisture. 
capture as well. Yeah. Hmm. But like I say, most of them, most of the tadpoles don't eat. This species, though, the tadpoles do eat. They have to drop into the water and find food. So these ones build their foam nests above water. And what's cool is that the tadpoles of these frogs, they actually contribute to the foam nest so after they're laid in the foam nest and they hatch they keep the foam going what they do is they like breathe out little bubbles and they wriggle up to the foam's surface and as they're wriggling up they're just like blowing these little bubbles so they're like constantly contributing yeah maintain the structure keeps it nice and foamy Apparently it also means, or like they think that these foam nests evolved as an adaptation so the tadpoles have to spend less time exposed to aquatic predators because there's lots of things in mm-hmm. the water. You know, it's all those little like insect larvae and stuff that always eat tadpoles. Yeah, sometimes not small either. Yeah, some of those like, yeah, you get them in the UK, those like dragonfly nymphs and they yeah, are Yeah, dragonfly terrifying. nymphs are proper like near apex sort of predator-like level in a pond, isn't it? It's like coming across a tiger in a pond yes yeah yeah you're right yeah. yeah they are i mean yeah i remember a very grisly circumstance when i was a park ranger and we were doing some pond dipping and somebody pulled out a little baby newt with dragonfly larvae biting its leg off Did very yeah they don't mess about very real situation for a bunch of six-year-olds yeah. to witness but yeah also they think that if they're sort of swimming up and bubbling around these tadpoles in the foam nest, it means they're not getting crowded in the water at the bottom. And so they, I think they could run out of oxygen very easily if they were all down at the bottom. So they can breathe a bit better by sort mm. of f- swimming, floating their way up to the top, blowing their bubbles. <laughs> Genius. And yeah, the, the species is called Adenomera tomei. It's named after this person called uh, João Carlos Alciati Tome, who did a bunch of conservation work in the Doce R- River coastal plain which is this area of Brazil where the type locality was collected. So there you go. Excellent. Nice new frog call for us to listen to. And yeah, let's move on, shall we, to our uh, main paper of the episode. And nothing to do with frogs. Absolutely nothing to do with frogs. So it was going to be to do with frogs, but this is cooler. So this is a paper by Lesnar, Dolman, Clark and Zhu and Holiday, published in 2023. Eco-morphological patterns in trigeminal canal branching among sauropsids reveal sensory shift in suchians. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a lot of words there that are not exactly widely used. Intimidating, words. scary words, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's a Journal of Anatomy paper, so it's words like that are abound. Yeah, they are. You just got to kind of gloss over them and try and get to the meat but yeah we're talking about nerve endings essentially so um the vertebrate trigeminal nerve we all have one you've got one ben you can probably feel it right now how, I can see d- how, d- how do you know i know you do because i've watched you experience sensation in your face <laughs> so yeah, okay yeah, all vertebrates have this nerve this is the nerve that connects the nerve endings which run through your face so all the nerves that go to your teeth every time you chew uh, it's the vertebrate trigeminal nerve who's in charge of telling your brain that's happening but also you know if you touch your face um it also apparently plays a role in like understanding where your limbs are don't really know how that is gets involved but apparently it does what yeah i'm not sure that's what it said online but when i googled it the vertebrate trigeminal nerve i googled it just to see like where it was it's always easier with the picture isn't it and yeah i saw like a load of human anatomical stuff like humans being dissected there was like a a human head cut in half perfectly 
like through the nose and then back and you could see the nerve and it was shocking to be honest i wasn't really ready to see that i thought it was going to be an artist's impression but it was a real human yeah. inside of a human head and i can confirm the nerve is in there oh good yeah it was shocking but yeah so <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks google yeah we have one um we have this trigeminal nerve and so do all other vertebrates we have relatively underdeveloped ones. Some birds, lizards and crocodilians have more pronounced versions. Birds, particularly birds which are sort of using their beaks to probe for food. So like kiwis, other shorebirds, ibises, you know, these birds with like the long beaks that are sort of like poking mm. them around. I imagine avocets would have it. Yeah. Spoonbills, maybe. They might uh, have a really freaky weird one. Spoonies have got crazy trigeminal right? nerves, mate. I'm sure. Got to, got to. But you know, yeah, they've got feeling in the feeling in the face. So when they're poking around, they can sort of da 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 see what's going on. But that's it. It's, it's feeling. It's not like picking up electrical signals or something. It's it's picking up mechanical movements, right? Yeah. It's sensation of touch as opposed to smelling or any other sense that yeah. might be associated with sort of face nerve endings yes exactly but this study i mean it was pretty remarkable really they were looking at these nerves in lots of different species but they were also looking particularly interestingly at extinct animals so they were looking at sort of like a bunch of extinct animals which are sort of crocodile like precursors to crocodiles looking to see what they had in the way of facial nerves and the way they were doing that is looking at the bones that well the fossils and doing scans of the fossils and looking to see like where these nerves connected or came through the bones so you can work out you know based right. on living animals you can compare the sort of nerve endings of living animals and look to see how they attach to the bones and then you can compare with fossils and see you know how well innovated they were how many nerves they had in their faces compared yeah. to modern animals and the idea is okay you've got like a dabbling duck that behaves it dabbles okay it lives in aquatic environment or crocodile lives in semi-aquatic environment you see how its nerves are arranged you compare that to extinct beastie and then you can make an inference based on the nerves that you're seeing in extinct creatures bone structure how it would have lived whether it was foraging what do they hit they call it tactile and non-tactile right so tactile is they're using these nerve endings this sense of touch to forage presumably in, in sort of aquatic or semi-aquatic environments because water transmits movement a lot better than air plus you know you might have your vision obscured and things like that yeah, and then the non-tactile, which are obviously visual by comparison. But the idea is to use living animals to infer how extinct animals may have foraged. Exactly, exactly. And like you say, they were either tactile or not. They looked at real animals, yeah, to see if they were, in fact, tactile. And they actually gave uh, paleontologists a bit of a calling out on the beginning of this paper as well. They were like, listen, paleontologists, why hasn't there been enough research? They have to do all these scans themselves because no one's really, well, like, people have been <laughs> looking into it, but not. But it's probably not even a real call out. It's probably one no, of those yeah. call outs that you put in a paper for the editor to read to be like, oh, this is important enough because clearly this is, should have been done ages ago sort of thing. Yeah, it's exactly that. That's it's what like, I always read them as. Yeah, I know. It's like um, we elected to study the facial nerves of all the alive animals. Unfortunately for us, 
no one's really bothered to look at this before and so we are the first and we are the best it's that sort yeah. of vibe isn't it but yeah, yeah. i still thought it was, it's i thought it was funny one of those hideous like, byproducts of having to imply everything's novel and special and unique when really it's just we're carrying on the work but this time we're using ct scans yeah very much so yeah and so um they looked at sort of the evolution of these things over time. And I think some of the key things which I found really interesting and obviously, you know, enhanced facial sensation is a really key innovation for living crocodilians. It's useful to be able to feel stuff, especially if you're predators of the water's edge, which they mostly are, or hunting fish, you know, having a strong mm -hmm. sense of touch on the face, being able to feel things close to your face, extremely important. But what I thought was really interesting was if you looked at their sort of... Um, how all the modern crocodilians were related to sort of the crocodile-like animals of the past, their ancestors, it seemed as though there was this increase in facial sensation that actually preceded them taking to the water. So the authors of this paper were like, the likelihood is that they adapted to have a more sensitive face, these like sort of pre-crocodile crocodiles that were walking around on land. And then once they decided to take to water, they already had these like extremely well innovated faces that gave them the yeah. ability to feel stuff yeah. in the water. So it's like they adapted and then that adaptation gave them a massive boon going forward and kind of diversifying once they had reached the water. And obviously they're still successful today, millions and millions of years later. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was the sort of, I got the impression in the discussion that it had been assumed the opposite way before that it was this radiation to semi-aquatic and aquatic environments that prompted a change in morphology and this paper is basically suggesting it's the other way around as the change in morphology enabled a new niche pretty tough time to be alive and wanting to go for a drink isn't it if suddenly because they were called they were pseudo citrians in the jurassic that sort of um first got these extra sensory facial things and it was shortly after that they took to the water so disastrous time to be a sort of hapless <laughs> hapless yeah. early or well, i don't know sort of like maybe you're just a, a sort of an amphibian bussing it around on the banks of the river and all of a sudden yeah crocodiles start taking to the water or pseudo citrians pre-crocodiles yeah. but yeah i thought they obviously talked about that. And to me, it's crazy to think that there was a time before crocodilians were aquatic. Obviously, they were pre -crocodilian. I know. It feels like such a given, doesn't it? It just it, <laughs> it know, feels yeah, so just... instrumental to what they are that anything that isn't classic crocodile feels like such a dramatic departure from what's right and good in the world. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed their discussion of some of the ancient sort of um, pre-crocodile crocodiles because the naming convention that they've given to the groups of crocodiles is just like absolutely bonkers i i, I can't keep it all in my head to, if i'm i just can't honest. keep up with things that are extinct I, I feel like i could if i more well, i don't know i don't really know much about it but like modern crocodiles are crocodilia right and then mm -hmm. they are in a clay if you go back a bit further they are included in a clade with crocodiliforms and then if you go back a bit further, you've got crocodilomorphs. And it's like, what? Like, why? <laughs> why do they go from being crocodilomorphs to crocodiliforms to crocodilia? Like, could you not have come up with another name that made it a little bit more easy to differentiate? Well, at least they're them? all linked. At least they're all preceded by crocker, so you know they're all connected. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. That makes, that's great. It's a crocker something, mate. Exactly. So just say croc and you're all right. Yeah. Even covers the shoes then. That's true, yeah. Because they talk about, obviously, the ancient crocodilians and in their figure they've got whether or not they're terrestrial, freshwater, marine. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the sort of ancient crocodilomorphs and crocodiliforms are, in fact, terrestrial, bussing it around on the land. But then there was one called 
Pelagosaurus. And that was an entirely marine type of crocodiliform. Hence the name Pelago. Yeah, exactly. Pelagosaurus. So pelagic being dwelling in the open ocean. I wonder if it's Pelagosaurus or Pelagosaurus. Well, but um, yeah, so this thing, it dwelt in the open water in the sea. So it's not near the coast. It's not near the bottom. It's like just swimming around in the water column. And it's such a cool creature. It's super, super slender sort of, what did I literally just say? Crocodiliform. Oh no, this one's a crocodilomorph. Super slender crocodilomorph. (laughs) And it's like even thinner than a gharial's head, you know, like super slender. And I think it ate small fish. And they also apparently it had like an insanely flexible spine because it was just swimming around in the sea. So it's like... So it's basically like, a, a crocodile snake. Well, kind of, but it had... Crocodile its feet, eel? Its feet had even turned into like flippers. So it's almost like a crocodile whale. Crocodile whale. Yeah. Crocodile whale. Pelagosaurus. Incredible. But yeah, like, you know how... I don't know if you know this, Ben, but if you try and like fold a crocodile in half so its head touches its tail backwards. Excuse me? No, no I don't. I've never tried to fold a crocodile in any which way. <laughs> well, it's, you don't need to bother because you can't. They don't fold that way. But apparently this one, <laughs> it would. It had like a really flexible spine that could flex, like sort of like swim up and behind itself, which oh. imagine if you're chasing fish is a pretty good adaptation. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Really cool creature. But yeah, so um, yeah, the sort of overarching theme of this paper, just, you know, there are these animals with these incredible facial nerve systems that allow them to be incredibly sensitive. Right. That's actually worth mentioning. One thing I just wanted to sort of touch is to a quick description of your like, what's the example they have? Like an anolis nerve structure along their bottom jaw, which is like one long nerve with like a few endpoints. Not very many. It's like a very, very young sapling. I'm going to use a tree analogy, very young sapling, very few branches. Whereas you go into the more crocodile adjacent creatures, they have this very dense network of lots of branches, lots of nerve endings, and it's got a lot higher density of nerve endings towards the sort of tip and the end of the, uh, I was going to say bill, snout. And it's this very, very much a, a dense network as opposed to a long like nerve that goes from point A to point B like ivy on the side of a house or something is it's very interwoven and the birds have something quite similar almost like a combination i would say where they have a very long sort of singular nerve and then it gets towards the end of the bill and it becomes this very dense network very much like the crocodiles with lots of branching uh, lots of nerve ending sort of nodes but there's this idea that you've got this increased sensitivity right at the end of the tip of the bill because that's the bit that's sort of most useful in terms of manipulation and, and, and catching prey. You don't need a whole bunch of nerves sort of along the way. So you've got this really nice gradient from a no list and sort of your non-tactile lizards that have a very basic, simple, very few nodes nerve system to a sort of combo system with a bird that's quite simple to begin with, but then gets really complex towards the end to this crocodilian setup that, to be honest, looks complex all over the place, but there is a higher concentration towards the end as well. And it's, yeah, Mm. it's kind of incredible. But if you look at like the Temistema as an example, that cool crocodile from um, like Borneo, yeah, it's got sensitive bits all the way along the jaw, hasn't it? So you could imagine that, you know, that's a crocodile which eats a lot of fish, slender snouted. It's got to be useful to be able to feel when there's a little fish right near you. Yeah, and I think 
there was something tallying up with where the nodes were located in relation to teeth location as well. I vaguely remember that popping up. So again, that sort of accounts for your bird crocodile difference a bit there because you've got these points of pressure that you'd need heightened feeling for, or it might be advantageous to have heightened feeling for. Hmm. Yeah, Tomistum is a wicked example, actually, of just nerves everywhere. <laughs> yep, still my favourite, still my favourite. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's yeah, about it, it for like the... Uh... Fingertip level sensitivity but all along your jaw. Crazy to think about. Like, how do you... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I never thought about it. But now, when you look at a crocodile next time, I wonder how much of the shape of their head is related to the fact that they have to have these. Optimizing that. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Because yeah. now you think of really... Their jaws are very deep. Like, you can see on the sides, there's a lot of surface area there. But yeah, so there we go. The trigeminal nerve morphology <laughs> the nerves in the faces of birds lizards and crocodiles and the evolution of pretty cool so while we're on the subject of crocodilians i've got some other business ben i've sent you a photo via via messenger you can see we had this sent to us by frederick griesbaum on twitter because we were talking about the alligators with the broken tails and it's basically oh when we were talking about it yeah it's mad isn't it i haven't seen it yet i'm more just oh, oh i remember that was just me remembering what those broken tails looked like they were some sort of eldritch eruption out of yeah exactly uh, so they lose the tail terrific. best case scenario they get a new tail grow back but it's just sort of black and without the normal scalation bloody fiji mermaid what's going on here it's insane right so this little alligator has lost its tail sort of quite close to the base actually like, yeah and what's happened is where it's grown it's lost, back what, two thirds of it maybe yeah it's lost like yeah probably two thirds of its tail and it's grown back as just like this one giant flipper like it looks crazy it does look a little bit like a mermaid but it's yeah. flat it's like sort of it's very much like a sort of dolphin tail thing that's come back yes it's it's flattened <laughs> sideways horizontally yeah. flattened yeah but with like a sort of line down the back of it it's very strange but it's crazy yeah. that's by far the most nuts example that we've seen that's crazier than the ones in the paper for sure yeah it doesn't look as bad from the top as it does from the bottom and from the bottom it looks like it's lost the majority of its tail from the top it doesn't look as bad but it's it's a dramatic difference like that's not an alligator slash caiman's tail no no no, very odd. But yeah, thanks very much, Frederick, for sending that to us. And that's, that's um, yeah, have you got any yeah. other business beyond that? No, I'm just going to be thinking about weird alligator tails for the rest of the day because that's. I wonder what their nerves are like in that. Probably not much, right? You can't probably not much grow nerves no, very well, I, can you? I doubt they have much feeling in there, but I don't know. But I've just got one of their piece of other business. So this paper came out by Smelsky et al. So this is in Toxicon, and essentially. This is kind of one of those classic situations where somebody said something once ages ago. Is this the rattlesnake thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got that saved this. as a paper to talk about a future episode, maybe. <laughs> but oh, if you well. want to cover it now swiftly, yeah. that's all good. Yeah, I thought I would, just because it's kind of cool. So yeah, somebody basically ages ago said that there was like a likelihood if you got bitten by a rattlesnake in Arizona that you could end up with like severe neurotoxic complications essentially like respiratory paralysis so you just won't be able to yep. breathe because of neurotoxins in the 
venom. You know, they've got a few Crotalis species in Arizona. And so basically someone said it like 60 years ago and in loads of publications, it's just been repeated. Like watch out because occasionally you could end up with neurotoxic <sighs> respiratory paralysis if you get bitten by a rattlesnake in yeah. Arizona. And yeah, these authors basically looked at like over 3000 rattlesnake bite reports and over 20 years. And yeah, there's no evidence of respiratory weakness in Arizona or even in the um, sort of southwestern United States. Yeah. So, well, and all instances that looked like it were from, uh, what's the thing that you have when you're allergic to stuff? Anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis, right? Any breathing stuff was connected to anaphylactic reactions as opposed to something from neurotoxicity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they basically conclude that, yeah, zero reports of neurotoxic respiratory weakness. And so if it is the case that neurotoxic respiratory failure happens in Arizona following rattlesnake envenomation, it's extraordinarily rare. And they suggest that these warnings about respiratory failure are unwarranted, regardless of the species of rattlesnake involved. They do still say that you should be very careful. If you get bitten by a rattlesnake, you need very urgent critical care and consideration because it is a yep. serious medical condition. But these And you could be of, allergic to it. That exactly. complicates matters quite dramatically. If you get bitten by a venomous snake, go to the hospital, obviously. But yeah. yeah, you're not likely to go into neurotoxic respiratory failure. So if you live in the arid southwestern United States and you're worrying that you'll get bitten by a rattlesnake and you'll be able, in a, unable to breathe, you don't have to worry about it anymore, basically. Well, so that's good. Yeah, apart from the anaphylaxis aspect, but yeah. Apart from the anaphylaxis or possibly uh, other horrible complications, but yeah. It's good. It's really great that someone's put in the work to actually properly look at that. But you really do have to question how these sorts of... I suppose you could call it a myth at this point. Like, how these sorts of things propagate and stick around. And I do find it frustrating in a lot of field guides that have little bits of nat history or little bits of ecology that it's very difficult to sort of backtrace where those bits of information come from. And I think it does turn into this sort of whisper network thing of like, it, you know, one person said it in a whenever and it sort of propagates out and you lose the source. And because it's been said so many times, it's assumed to be credible when really it's just, you know, well, in this case, not credible at all. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I find it very frustrating that there's, if you're making claims like that, there should be something to back it up at the end of the day. And that what's being used to back it up should be available in some form. Mm. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that people just citation that said something and then they didn't have access to it. And it's like, well, yeah, exactly. you've got to do your due diligence. I'm, right, right. I'm not necessarily blaming sort of subsequent people because you're, you know, you're limited by access. My criticism more comes at like, what on earth sort of scientific system do we have that have limited access that allows something like that to continue on it's it's madness yeah no i agree yeah not good enough so all right i think that just about sort of finishes up our episode about the uh facial nerve stuff with crocodiles and if you want to get in touch with us you can hurt highlights at gmail.com similarly we're on social media so find us on there and yeah i think that's about it so thank you very much for listening yeah thanks for listening 